And I want to speak to you from this first chapter this morning on the subject, the foolishness of the cross. I can honestly say to you that if I only had one last sermon to preach in my life, that I'd want it to be a sermon about the cross. The cross is the most important thing for us as Christians. In the aftermath of 9-11, there were rescue workers, of course, that were frantically looking for people who may have survived that terrible explosion and collapse of buildings in the World Trade Center. And as the people were looking through and sifting through all the twisted, uh, metal, mangled, mangled and metal beams that they found there, uh, they were looking for bodies, and they found two metal beams that had perfectly welded themselves into a cross. And on the side of that cross, there was a jacket of a firefighter who'd lost his life in the explosion, and the jacket had actually turned silver as it melted to the side of that cross. And the cross that they found there became really an an inspiring symbol for those people as they continued to look for people who had died in the World Trade Center. And so the cross, I think, for us is a very powerful emblem. And yet there are many people today who ignore the cross, they look past the cross, and they don't think about the terrible pain and suffering that took place there and what Jesus did as he died on the cross. Oswald Chambers wrote, All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. In the time of Paul, as in our time, the prospects of a man dying on a cross, someone dying for sin, I mean, that was just pure foolishness to the people that Paul talked with. And today I'd like to speak to you about this subject, and we're going to determine this morning just how foolish is the preaching of the cross. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read from God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 is where we'll begin today. And here Paul writes, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. I just ask you, Lord, that you'd help me as I preach this message Help us to understand better what was done at the cross. Help us to discern the meaning there, what Christ did as he died for sins. Lord, we just pray that you might speak to his hearts today, draw us closer to you. If there might be someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be the day that they would come to you in faith. Bless in this message, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
And that's exactly what Paul faced as he traveled around as a missionary in the first century. Paul went to many different cities preaching the word of God, and he went to places such as Corinth, places where there were people who were wrapped up in all different kinds of differing subgroups and different schools of human philosophy. And one of the problems that, that the Corinthian people did or, or had when they, when they trusted Christ, when they became Christians, they tried to drag some of that human philosophy into the church. And Paul is trying to teach these people that human philosophy is not needed. Where human philosophy agrees with the Bible and agrees with God, then that is uh, sufficient for us to have the Bible. The Bible tells us enough that we need to know that so that whatever human philosophy, whenever it agrees with God, we don't really need the philosophy, we just need the Bible. And whenever human philosophy does not agree with the Bible and with the Word of God, it's not needed because whatever disagrees with God is not profitable, but it's nothing but confusion. And this is what Paul is trying to show these people. Well, today, I'd like for us to look at the cross, and we'll see today that God's wisdom far exceeds the wisdom of men, and that the preaching of the cross is really not foolishness at all to those who are being saved by it. Now, there are three important aspects that I'd like to talk to you as we consider the cross today. First of all, I want to discuss with you the meaning of the cross. What is it that the cross means to us? What does the cross say? What is the significance of the cross? And I hope that you understand that when I say cross, I'm not talking about a a crucifix that someone wears around their neck. I'm not talking about a, a, a cross over here that we have in the baptistry or the one that we have on the outside of this building. I'm talking about that cross where Jesus went, where he bled and he died 2,000 years ago, where the precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the remission of sin and that people who trust in that cross and what Jesus did there can be saved. What happened when Jesus went to the cross? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, our text says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, verse number 18 there is really the key to the passage that we're studying today. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, in our King James Version, that verse says, unto us which are saved. And I want you to very clearly understand this today, that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that at the very moment that you trusted him, you were saved. I mean, you are eternally saved. You'll always be saved. There's no possibility, the Bible says, that you'll ever come into condemnation. The word saved means safe. And anybody who believes and teaches that salvation can be lost, they don't understand what salvation really is. Because salvation means safe. That's what it means to be saved. And so you could never have a possibility of losing your salvation. But the meaning of that verse in the King James, I mean, this is really great. It is when we consider what Christ did on the cross, that we are saved by Christ's death on the cross. But that's really not all that this verse means. In the original language, the words here, which are saved, really has the meaning of a continuous action. It's not that just that we're saved by the cross, but that also right now we are being saved by it. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand because there are a lot of people who just look at the past 
when you talk about salvation. And so they say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? I mean, I've always heard that when I trusted Christ, I got saved. So what do you mean that the Scriptures can be translated here that we are being saved? What does that mean? And there is a lot of arguing about this because there are people who only want to look at the past tense meaning and there are people who refuse to acknowledge that rightfully there is more than just a past tense to our salvation. Now, if we look at Romans chapter 13, verse 11, it's very clear to us from this scripture that salvation is more than just the past tense. Here Paul writes, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So it's clear from that scripture that there has to be a process to salvation, and salvation actually occurs in three different tenses. I want to give you all three of these tenses first today as we talk about these. First, when we think about the past tense of salvation, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's the past tense. Then there is the present tense of salvation, and that is when we are being saved from the power of sin. And then there is also a future tense of salvation. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Now, I want all of you today that are here in church and and you are saved people, I want you to think about for just a moment the time that you were saved. Go back in your mind and think about that moment that you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Well, at that very moment, what Christ did was to take the penalty of your sin away. Christ canceled the penalty of sin. And of course, that penalty was everlasting punishment in the fires of hell. And so when you trusted Christ, when you were saved, this is exactly what happened. The penalty of your sin was removed. Now, here's a question for you. When you were saved, that's in the past tense, when you were saved, did God remove the presence of sin? And if you're saved today, I think you can say, well, no, God did not remove the presence of sin because sin is still in our lives. And that's why Paul wrote that great chapter of Romans chapter 7. And he talked about the struggle that he had in the Christian life. The presence of sin was still there. And so even the great apostle Paul, he struggled with doing the things that he ought to do and doing things that he ought not to do. And so that presence of sin was in his life and there was a struggle over that. But folks, here is what God is doing for us right now in the present. present, Those that that are saved, God is saving us from the power of sin. And what I mean is that every day that you go through your Christian life, as you get closer to the Lord, as you know more about Him, as you you, uh, feast upon His Word, as you pray, as you do what God wants you to do, you are continually being delivered more and more from the power of sin. And that power of sin will grow less and less in your life. And then, of course, in the future... When you finally do get to heaven, that's when you're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. And heaven, oh, that's going to be a wonderful place because there's no temptation there. There's no sin there. We'll live forever in a perfect, sinless body made just like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, you really have to understand these three tenses of salvation to really know what God is doing. And if you don't understand that, as a Christian, you're doomed to be confused. You're going to be discouraged throughout your Christian life because you have the problem of sin that you have to live with. And you need to know that God is right now helping you with the power of sin that's here. Now, many people try to teach that once you get saved, that everything's going to be just fine. Everything's going to be a bed of roses. You'll just lie down in that bed of roses, and all of your Christian life, there'll be sweet smells and pleasant experiences. But if you really understand verse 18, you see that salvation is an ongoing process. Now, it's true there was a garden involved in this whole thing, but it wasn't a rose garden. Back when God created Adam and Eve, we know that God put them into the garden. And God told Adam, he said, Adam, you can eat of any tree that's in this garden except one tree. And that tree, of course, had that forbidden fruit. And God said to Adam, Adam, don't trespass my commandment. You can't eat of that tree. But that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And do you remember what God said to Adam even before that that Eve was created? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. Anybody ever have a problem with that scripture? What does that mean there when God said, Thou shalt surely die? Because we know from reading the scripture, I mean, if you studied this thing out, that Adam did not die when he ate of the fruit, did he? I mean, it was 900 years after that. The Bible says he lived for another 900 years before he actually died. So is God telling us a lie here? Does God know what he's talking about when he said to Adam, you'll surely die if you eat of this tree? Well, here's what actually happened. When Adam ate of the tree, immediately Adam died spiritually. He was dead spiritually. Now, as he went through his life, his body physically also began to die. took years for that to happen, but eventually Adam's body did wear out, just like our bodies wear out, and Adam died just like we die. But here's the real truth about salvation. Salvation is God reversing that process. Salvation is when God reverses this whole thing that Adam and Eve messed up. Now, let's look at this thing again. I've listed these letters on your listening sheet one more time so we can go back over this. What about the past tense of salvation? Well, in the past tense, you are justified in your spirit. You're justified in your spirit. In the present tense, you are being sanctified in your soul. And in the future tense, you will be glorified in your body. So do you see how that works? Adam ate of this fruit... Immediately, he died in his spirit. He died progressively in his soul. And then ultimately, he died in his body. Well, what God does when you get saved is that he reverses that process so that immediately you are justified in your spirit. You are progressively sanctified in your soul. And ultimately, you will be glorified in your body. So when you get saved, you have this immediate justification. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And that means there is no judgment. You will not come into judgment, those that are in Christ Jesus. 
And then as you go through your Christian life, you are progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, "...being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you..." And that good work that he's talking about is salvation. If God has begun that good work in you, he will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. So he's sanctifying you throughout this life. And then finally, one day, God's going to take this body and he will glorify it. This body will be made just like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be a body that's perfectly fitted for eternal life. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21 says, For our conversation, that's our life, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And that's exactly what salvation is. God is reversing this process that was started by Adam and Eve. Well, some people, though, They do want to continually dwell on that past tense aspect. And they say, I was saved. Bless God, 29 years ago, and they're all hunched over. I was saved, and I'm on my way to heaven. And they think about the past. And their salvation is really like grandma's old feather bed. Anybody ever seen one of those? Grandma's feather bed. You know, it's real solid right up next to the headboard at the beginning. And it's real firm right down at the bottom at the footboard at the end. But the middle part is pretty saggy and pretty squishy, isn't it? And that's how people's salvation is. I mean, they know that they're saved and they know that they're going to heaven. But the problem that they have is the middle part. It's the life that we live right now. Well, you need to understand that not only were you saved, but right now you are being saved. God is doing a work in your life right now if you're a Christian. And so we need to think about what God's doing for us in this life right now. So he writes to these people here. Now, he's not writing to people that are dead, obviously. Not Christians that are dead. They're already gone. He's not writing to Christians that are in the future. They haven't been born yet. He's writing to people right now who are being saved. And if you're a Christian, friend, you are being saved right now. Now, I want you to notice, though, that there is a flip side to verse number 18. The beginning of this verse says... For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now, that part really has the same thought of a continuous action. In other words, we could say they are perishing. These people are perishing. Now, lost people can look pretty good on the outside. You'd never know that they were perishing. They're vibrant. They're healthy, physically fit. They look pretty good on the outside. Folks, there is something way wrong that's going on on the inside. It's like a person who has undiagnosed cancer. That person could look fine on the outside, couldn't even tell that they've ever been sick a day in their life. But there's something going on on the inside, and that cancer is eating away, and actually they are perishing right then. Now, that might be the problem with somebody in this congregation today. This talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, oh, that's foolishness to you. 
I mean, uh, everything's fine in your life, it seems like. You're going along just the way that you want to go. You're having fun. You don't really need God because your life is perfect the way that it is. And so you think Christians are crazy. I mean, even to come to a church service like today and, and to be sitting here under the preaching of God's Word, you think, well, that's foolishness. I could be out there having fun somewhere. I can do lots of other things on Sunday besides going to church. And you don't realize that right now in your soul, in your life, in your whole being, you are perishing right now. And the problem here is that eventually your body will die. And because the penalty of sin was never removed by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because you are not justified, you're going to spend eternity in a place called hell. And so that's the meaning of the cross. It's the place where salvation from the penalty of sin was obtained. Salvation from the power of sin is ongoing. And salvation from the presence of sin will finally be realized. Now let's go on for just a moment. We're going to talk about a second aspect of the cross. And this is the message of the cross. In verse number 18 again, the scripture says, For the preaching of the cross... The word preaching there in that verse is a translation of the Greek word logos. In other places of Scripture, we find the same word is translated as word. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about Jesus is the word of God, the living logos, the divine logos. That's Jesus. So what Paul is saying here, the word of the cross or the preaching of the cross. Well, what is the cross saying to us? Well, in verse number 22, Paul writes, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, that's the cross, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. The Jews were always looking for a sign. You remember how the Apostle John used that word sign as we studied the Gospel of John? The sign, a sign is simply a miracle. And the Jews were always looking for miracles. Well, why? Why did the Jews look for miracles? Well, because they were very, very interested in demonstrations of power. And so they loved to see the miracles. On the other hand, the Greek, on the other hand, the Greeks, and and that would be Gentiles like you and me, uh, the Greeks were more impressed with wisdom and philosophy. Well, for the Jews, the cross of Christ was a stumbling block because when you look at a man dying on a cross... You don't see any power in that. There's no power in being nailed to a cross. I mean, even Peter didn't recognize it at first. Peter, when he heard that Jesus was going to the cross, he protested against it. He said, Jesus, you can't go there. You can't die on a cross. And the Jews, while Jesus was hanging there, they said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And wouldn't that have been just a a powerful display? If Jesus had come down from the cross, why, that would be a powerful display. But when Jesus chose to stay on that cross, the Jews weren't impressed by him at all. And so they said, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. So they're not impressed by Jesus being nailed to a cross. No, on the other hand, the Greeks preferred wisdom. They they were interested in intellectualism, the wisdom of men. And so they wanted Jesus to be like a double Socrates to them. They wanted Jesus to be Plato or or Aristotle. They wanted Jesus to give them golden nuggets of wisdom. And so it didn't make any sense to them to see a man dying on a cross. The Greeks 
and their thought of what, who God is and what the gods were, they thought that the gods were totally indifferent to men. That everything that was, was uh, material was evil. And everything that is spiritual is good. And so for God to become a man, that just doesn't reckon with their reasoning. That can't happen because that would mean that God would have to become evil. And so for God to come and become a man and to die on a cross, utter foolishness. You can't believe that. It's foolishness. Well, Paul addressed both of those objections, and he revealed that the message of the cross is actually twofold. Look at verse number 24. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So what is the message of the cross? Well, the message is, first of all, that Christ is the power of God, and that secondly, Christ is the wisdom of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the perfect answer for both groups of people. He's the answer for the Jews and also for the Greeks, and that means both Jews and Gentiles alike. They all find the perfect answer in the cross of Christ. You remember when Satan took Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple? He tempted Jesus, and he said, if you'll just throw yourself off of this temple, then the angels will come and they'll deliver you. They'll lift you up. And boy, the Jews would have liked that, wouldn't they? Jesus jumping off the temple, and suddenly he floats down to the earth and he's unharmed. Oh, they'd love a sign like that. I mean, our charismatic friends, they'd love to see a sign like that too. I mean, they'd jabber all the way to town about that. I mean, they'd roll in the aisles and jump over the pews to see a sign like that. But Jesus resisted that. They wanted something powerful, but instead, Jesus gave them the cross. Now, the Jews, or rather the Greeks, they wanted wisdom. And so they were always scrutinizing all the different teachings. They were looking through them very carefully. And it just didn't mesh with their kind of thinking. But when Jesus died on that cross, folks, he made the power of men powerless. And he made the wisdom of men nothing but foolishness. And that's because the wisdom of God is smarter than the wisdom of men. Now, what did, what did the signs actually do for the Jews? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, what did those signs that the Jews that they were looking for and demanding, what did that actually do for them? Did you know Jesus performed many miracles? We studied about them in the book of John. And most of the miracles that Jesus did were public miracles. People could see what Jesus did. And yet, there were very few of the Jewish people who actually believed on Jesus. Remember that story in John chapter 9 about the blind man? The blind man was healed, and the Jews refused to believe that he was even the same man who'd been born blind. So they called his parents and they asked them to vouch for him. Is this your son? Yes, that's our son. He was born blind. That's our son, no doubt about it. And the Jews even refused to believe after they saw the great miracle. And you know what they did? They threw the blind man out of the temple. The sign didn't do them any good. Those who look for miracles, statues that cry, idols that bleed, the Virgin Mary, visions of the Virgin Mary on grilled cheese sandwiches, Speaking in tongues and rolling on the floor and faith healings and all of those things, all of that is an excuse not to believe. And then the Greeks, did that philosophy help them? Did the Greek philosophers solve the great problems of the world? 
mean, man's been looking for the, the, the solution to all these problems for so many years. They've been trying to find it out by wisdom. But has man ever stopped a war? Has wars, have wars been eliminated in this world? Have we stopped hunger by our wisdom? Have all of our advances in technology stamped out man's ignorance? Think about that for just a moment. What has technology done for us? You know, today, now we have high-tech criminals. We haven't eliminated crime through our knowledge and our technology. We just made high-tech criminals. Now everybody has to have 14 antivirus programs on your personal computer because somebody figured out how to hack in, steal your passwords, and drain your, drain your bank accounts. Our wisdom does not solve the problems of men. It can't do it. Worldly wisdom accomplishes nothing. So Christ is the power of God. And why is that? Because in power, Jesus came out of the tomb. In power, Jesus came back from the dead. Anybody here know anybody that came back from the dead? I haven't met anybody like that. Only Jesus had the power to come back from the dead. And Christ is the wisdom of God because all that man has ever been able to do in his wisdom, in all, he's never been able to find out God. But do you know that's exactly what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, who he is? He is the one who reveals God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So worldly wisdom can't find this out. Only Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, can actually reveal the Father to anyone. He's the only one that brings us to the Father. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now there the verse says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. And what that actually means is, It pleased God by the foolishness of the thing that is preached. And what is the thing that is preached? The foolishness of the Savior dying on a cross. That's what's foolishness to people. And folks, that is the very thing that saves people who believe. Now that leads me to the final observation today. We've talked about the meaning of the cross and the message of the cross. And finally, let's talk about the miracle of the cross. It's by the cross that we're born again. Sins are forgiven by the cross. Now, if you ask me to explain how that happens, I'll have to tell you, I don't know. It's a miracle. I don't understand how it happens, but I know sins are forgiven by the cross. Again, Paul says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Right now, I'm standing here doing what Paul did 2,000 years ago. Why haven't we come up with a high-tech replacement for preaching? In all these years, why haven't we done something better than just preaching like I'm doing today? You know, people have tried that. I mean, they've, they've tried to substitute things for it. In 2004, everybody from Billy Graham to Jack Hayford to Rick Warren, they all touted that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and they said, that's the most powerful evangelistic tool that the world has ever seen. Millions of people we brought to Christ through this. The praises were sung. Thousands will be saved. Christ, th this movie is going to revolutionize the entire world. 
me ask you, did that happen? No, it didn't happen. And you know why it didn't happen? Because God didn't choose Mel Gibson to lead people to Christ. He never said that movies and plays and drama productions in the church is the way that you're going to win people. The Bible teaches us that the way that people come to Christ has always been one and the same. Preaching is God's means. And if Jesus Christ tarries another 2,000 years, it will still be the preaching of the cross that brings men and women and boys and girls to the, cross, or to the salvation. There is no substitution for the preaching of the Word of God. And folks, that's why when you go out on visitation and when you want to talk to people about the Lord, you don't have to carry your TV and your VCR and a movie along with you to show them about how to be saved. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is take this right here, the Word of God, and you need a witness with beautiful feet, and you need a heart that's been prepared by the Holy Spirit. And when you have that, people will get saved. It's always been that way, and God always uses the preaching of the cross to bring people to Him. Now, a miracle happens when you preach about the cross. Folks, there are two ways that you can respond to the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, you may respond to him in faith. You can respond in faith. You don't figure this thing out. You can't figure it out. You don't put it into a test tube. You can't put it into a Petri dish and by experimentation try to figure out how it all works. You can't do it. You just have to take the principle and apply it. I want you to look down for just a minute at chapter 2, verses number 4 and 5. And we'll get a little preview of what's coming in a sermon uh, in a few weeks. Paul writes, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The only way that the cross will ever become effective in your life is by the power of God and not by man's wisdom. Now, you'll notice something about Brian Baptist Church. We're, we're a little bit different than most Baptist churches because one of the things that I don't do is at the end of the service, I don't give long, long invitations where I get up and I beg and I plead for people to walk down the aisles. I don't do that. Many preachers will close their Bible at the invitation time and they'll say, now we've come to the most important part of the service. We're at the most important part. And they begin to beg and they plead for people to come down the aisles. Well, folks, begging and pleading and clever manipulation tactics of men do not bring people to Jesus Christ. The most important part of any service in Berean Baptist Church is when this Bible is open and I'm preaching the Word of God because this is what God uses to regenerate the heart. It's not going to be whether I can convince you to do anything, whether I can tell you a sad story and make tears come down your eyes, whether I can put the fear of God in you because you're afraid of hell. That's not what brings people to Christ. The only thing that brings a man to the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word of God because this is what God uses to regenerate the heart. So the most important part of our services is when we're preaching God's Word. Because while that's going on, the Holy Spirit is gripping people's hearts and beginning to work in them, showing them how to be saved. So you can respond in faith to this. 
You can respond in faith by simply believing what the Bible says, what Jesus did on that cross. Or you may respond in foolishness. Either you'll receive the preaching of the Word of God and the cross by faith, or you'll reject this whole thing as foolishness. You ever thought about what a miracle the cross is? On a spring afternoon, 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter was nailed to a cross and put into a tomb. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're telling people that if you'll just believe that, you can be saved. That's foolishness. How could you explain that? How could a simple message like that have survived all of this time? 2,000 years? I mean, why haven't we just passed this off as a fable or as a fairy tale? This is just somebody's superstition to think about the cross. Why is it that 2,000 years ago the message is not gone, it hasn't faded away, and people are still being saved by that? That's a miracle. You can't put it any other way. You can't explain it because this is a miracle. Now, remember a story in the Bible that Jesus used to illustrate just how foolish it is in men's eyes to believe in the cross. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There Jesus is referring to a story that took place in Numbers chapter 21. Children of Israel were out in the wilderness. They were wandering there, and they were getting very upset. They were very angry at Moses' leadership. They were mad about being in the wilderness. They were too afraid to go into the promised land. And so they were just griping and complaining about everything. They were complaining because God sent them manna to eat, and they were getting sick and tired of manna. Every day when they got up, it was manna for breakfast and and manna for lunch and manna for supper. They fixed manna in every possible way that you can imagine. I mean, there was manna casseroles and manna soup. And there was was manna uh, uh, spaghetti, if you could fix it into that. They had had manna everything, banana manna bread, anything you could think of. They they were trying to, to, to figure out some way that they could just eat manna in a different way. And they hated the stuff. They were getting tired of it. And these were just grumpy, upset people. And so they were complaining. And so in their complaining, God said, I'm tired of that. And so he sent fiery serpents among the people. And those serpents began to bite them, and the children of Israel began to die. Well, Moses was the one who was the brunt of their complaint. But you know, it was Moses the one who went to God and interceded for them. And Moses began to pray, and he said, Could you send us something to keep these people from dying? And you know what God did? He did send Moses something, but totally not what we would expect. He didn't send vials of anti-venom down from heaven to cure them from snake bite. No, that's what we would have done. Go find the Egyptians. Go find the apothecaries. Go anywhere you can. Find some, something that you can give these people for snake bite. But God did something that was utterly ridiculous, and yet it was shockingly simple. He said, Moses, I want you to make a serpent out of brass, and I want you to put that on a pole and hold it up in front of the people. And anybody who looks at that pole, they'll be healed from their snake bite. Isn't that ridiculous? How could you be healed from a snake bite by looking at a snake on a pole? And that was just foolishness. But I can imagine that one by one, the people of Israel began to look at that pole and people began to be healed by it. 
But you need to understand something. There, there was probably at least two million people, maybe even more, that were out in the wilderness. And not everybody could possibly have gotten news about that snake on the pole all at one time. And so there must have been people that were way out on the fringes of the camp who hadn't heard about that snake on the pole. They hadn't yet been able to see it. So imagine that you are an Israelite and you're sitting in your tent and you've been bitten by a snake. You're sitting there in your tent and you're moaning and you're crying and you're about to die. But there's a passerby who comes and he hears the moaning from your tent. And so he knocks on your tent door and opens the flap And he says, I see you have a problem there. Have you heard about this? Moses put a snake up on a pole. And if you'll just look at that snake, you can be healed. And you're thinking, that's utterly ridiculous. That is foolishness. About that time, the guy in your tent next next to you, he hears what this passerby is saying. And he says, is that guy going door to door again? Telling people about that snake on a pole thing? He came and told me about that. I don't believe that. I don't believe in those snakes on pole theories. And so you're kind of questioning now. And you look at this passerby and you say, it sounds so, so ridiculous. It's so foolish. Being healed by looking at that serpent on the pole, that can't be right. How do you know that that works? And that man says, I was bitten. And I looked at the pole and I was healed. That's how I know that it works. And he says, if you'll just look at that pole, you'll be healed as well. Folks, here's what I'm telling you today as I preach this message. I was bitten. I was dying. But then I looked at Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, and I saw the blood that flowed down from his hands and from his feet and from his side, and I believe that Jesus would save me, and Jesus would heal me from my disease of sin, and I trusted him to do that. And so I can tell you right now, I know that it works. It can happen to you because it happened to me. That's what the story about the snake on the pole is all about. As Jesus was lifted up, as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So I'm telling you today, I'm preaching this to you today because I know that what you think is foolishness is really the wisdom of God. You've never been able to save yourself. No one can do that. There's only one thing that God says. You must come to him in faith. It's a very simple requirement, and yet it's utterly foolish for you to reject it. Just believe it. Have faith in Jesus dying on a cross, and you too can be saved. Now let me very simply... Tell it to you one more time in another way. Look to the cross and live. That's all you need to do today. Just look to the cross and live. You respond in faith. Don't respond in foolishness. And I tell you that if you will trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sins right now, you will be saved from the penalty of sin. You will be saved from the power of sin. And bless God, you will be saved one day from the presence of sin. All that you need to do is trust Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, I just ask you, Lord, that you might speak to some person's heart today. Help them to understand that what has seemed foolishness for so long is actually the power of God they can save. 
Help them to look to the cross today and see your son lifted up, bleeding and dying, and understand that by the cross we are saved. Lord, speak to hearts today as Christians draw us closer to you. Help us to understand better what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.